Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Iowa as I continue to work remotely this summer. Yesterday was our annual Rays live conference. Check it out if you didn't get to join us live. It was an amazing day. This will probably be published about a month afterwards. Um, but just kind of coming off of that and really excited to welcome Mike Bacon, who's the Vice President for Alumni Relations and Development at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, to today's podcast. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Brett. Glad to be here. Well, we're super excited to catch up with you. And even before we started the episode, we were talking about you know, how we approached RAISE this year, which was fully virtual with an in-studio component and thinking about hybrid next year. And you, you were talking about some of the challenges you all are are thinking through as it relates to hybrid. So we're gonna get into that for sure. But one of the things I've been doing with recent guests that I've really enjoyed, um, and I think in your case, it's, it's absolutely aligned, is to better understand your own higher education journey. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, you are one of the relatively few folks out there who is leading the advancement organization for your own alma mater. Uh, you probably didn't anticipate that when you were a junior in high school, thinking through next steps. And so I'd love to know who that guy was. Tell me about Mike in high school and ultimately what led you to Trinity. Well, so I was looking for a good liberal arts college and I grew up in Tulsa. So kind of looked regionally. I looked nationally, too. And um, it really was kind of between Grinnell and Trinity Um came down to visit Trinity in November and the weather looked like what's behind me. Uh, people were wearing shorts. We had a great time. And I just thought, okay, I can see myself here. Um, and I've never regretted it. Having grown up just North of Grinnell. Uh, yeah. It would not have looked quite like that in November. For sure. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, uh, I've since talked to a lot of friends who've been to Grinnell. Awesome place, but I've been, I've been really happy with the choice that I made here and the network I built. And I know as a student, I saw in your bio that you did participate in the gateway drug to advancement known as the phonathon. And so tell me, uh, was that kind of your catalyst to at least get some exposure to this space? I mean, I know you're involved as a student um, as well, but what were some of the highlights from your time at Trinity? Oh, man. Well, okay, I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to take off video. The photo that I have for my profile for Zoom is actually... Um, Hold on. Let's see if I can just stop video. Is me at the phonathon Crushing in it. the 1980s, and uh, so yeah. So I literally um, got involved as a student. Uh, it was all volunteer at the time, but the big kicker was at the time we had a donor who sent uh, the top five callers on a trip to London, and so I was like, yes, I'm going to go for that. So first year I just participated. But the second year, I think I was the top pledge getter. So it was the top two pledge getters, the top two fundraisers, and then a wild card. And so um, anyway, I got that for a couple of years, loved it. And then as I was thinking about jobs, I was a history major. I didn't want to go to grad school. I wasn't going to be a lawyer. Didn't think I would be a teacher. Ironically, I've done a lot of teaching since. But as it turned out, I started reading through the Chronicle of Higher Education. And in those days, when it was just a print, publication, there was a back section of all the ads. And so I started applying for jobs and the phonathon experience really helped when I did that. I also had had a couple internships while I was a student for nonprofits. And so the day before I graduated, 
I got my one and only job offer from Kenyon College in Ohio. And I, I thought that was God telling me, take the job. So, uh, so that was my first job. I went straight into the annual fund at Kenyon um, for my first couple of years out of Trinity. So you grow up in Tulsa, you go to college in San Antonio, you're hammering out the, call, the, the phone-a-thon calls, and then you, at 22, end up in uh, northern Ohio. In northern Ohio with all four seasons again. Right. Uh, I love the people I worked with. It is a fine school. Uh, if you don't know Kenyon, it is a beautiful Gothic campus surrounded by cornfields. And, you know, as much as I love the work, um, and I got to travel the country doing regional phonathons at that time, where we'd go to a city and gather alumni together to make calls to people in the area. Um, I worked with the student phonathon program, did reunion giving and class agents, all the things you want to do early in your career. Um, it was, it, it, my family was here in Oklahoma and Texas. And when you can't wear shorts in March in Ohio, there's something wrong. So I knew I needed to get back to, to the South. Before we go to that move, I saw something about the 100% senior giving program. Now we're talking ah. 1990, roughly. What was the 100% senior giving program? You know, that was, it was an early model and I still think there's value in it where we asked seniors as they graduated to make a four year ascending pledge. It could be five, 10, 15, 20. It could be a higher increment. And we pitched it along the lines of, make your gift. And it's basically the cup of, you know, it's a six pack and a pizza basically. But the idea was to get them to participate as they graduate. And then they'd be picked up in their fifth year by their class reunion. Um, and so the, the challenge with those programs is always pledge redemption. Um, but I would still tell you that um, even if they only got about half of the pledge redemption, it still would have been higher than most colleges that just try every year to try and get the alumni gift initially because we did a lot of educating while they were still there as students about the value of that participatory gift. So um, I, I've tried to bring it to other places. One of the things I, uh, the pushback I get from staff is that the pledge redemption is so low, but I still think there's value in a program like that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've got to figure out a way as a sector to move past the era of the pledge. I know it's so ingrained in what we do, but right. you know, I don't pledge to Spotify. I don't pledge to Netflix. I but what you say, do, Brent, yeah. is you do recurring gifts. I recur. I recur. No, I know. And but, so I, mean, I think you could morph yes. a pledge program into a recurring credit card gift. You can figure out a way to do it through electronic funds transfer, something where it was painless. Absolutely. And it just seems like, uh, you know, that's not a space where we directly um, sort of play at Evertrue, but it just feels like recurring subscription payments have gotten so easy. Why isn't that the six pack and the pizza, you know, plus touchless, you know, experiences for those right. seniors. Right. And, and, you know, you were trying to do this in 1990 where there was no Apple pay, there was no texting, there was no, we weren't used to that concept, you know, PayPal, Venmo, whatever. And, and, and yet here we are in 2021 where we have all that stuff. But it's still not easy. And I think it's a reminder that it's not just about easy technology or easy recurring payments because we have that now. It's that married with a compelling, right, a compelling reason for somebody to subscribe, if you will. Well, and I never forget that the value of those programs is that you have got student leaders exerting some peer pressure on their fellow students. And so it's the idea of a volunteer approaching you to support a cause 
and they're in the same, they're in your shoes. They're right there with you. So I think that's why those programs really do well because a friend asks a friend to make a gift. Exactly. It's not amorphous emails and letters from the college president that you don't know, but it's your friends asking you to support. And that of course goes back to why we use that model. Most of us for reunions. Right. Well, from Kenyon, uh, you had two years without shorts in the winter. You made the move back to San Antonio. And my understanding is you're in an independent school context, basically serving as an inaugural leader. And so what, what definitely stands out about your early career is between rolling up your sleeves and hammering out the calls yourself as a student, doing some of the cat herding associated with volunteer management and really getting through those cycles but then also assuming a leadership role in a very, I would imagine, uh, nascent fundraising context with very little infrastructure, uh, you had to roll up your sleeves and just, uh, I'm sure, juggle a lot uh, during that role. Tell me about the independent school world, which typically tends to be a little bit more parent-oriented um, in nature, but uh, what was your context? So I was the first director of development at this school for boys, pre-K through eighth grade. But the great part was the school was 150 years old. So I really credit it with helping launch my kind of network in San Antonio. It was the kind of school where kind of the, all the families that were donors at other institutions in town sent their boys. And so I was able to meet grandparents, parents, kids, kids who are now parents of their own kids at that school and are leaders in their own right. It really created a whole network for me within this community that I've come back to again and again. Um, but it was, as you say, largely parent-driven in terms of the activities on a, on a, a yearly basis. But this was this little school had a, a fond, spot in the heart, fond spot in the hearts of the alumni. These guys would come back. I was planning 50th reunions for guys coming back to their 50th reunion of their eighth grade class. So it was a lot of fun. And it, I think my key takeaway, because it was, as you say, a lot of volunteer management, um, I just enjoyed it a lot. And I think my, my, what I really learned, it wasn't so much about me trying to get parents to like me, but it was them understanding how much I liked them, that, that they would go, if they knew I was depending upon them, they would go above and beyond to try and make something happen for me. And that really helped. And what I wouldn't expect at this point in the journey, in your career path, is you would then say, and now I need my MBA, which is not <laughs> really typical in this sector, and it doesn't totally fit the arc of where I might have saw things going for you. Right. So was it part of getting, building that network? I'm sure there was a strong uh, McCombs uh, sort of MBA network within the, the philanthropic community in San Antonio. I mean, what was it that made you think about moving in that direction? So it was a very intentional choice. I had worked with, in my role at the Academy, San Antonio Academy, I'd worked with a couple foundations and I thought that what I wanted to do was work for a charitable foundation. So I, I sort of anticipated the best hire for a foundation would be somebody with a nonprofit background who understands fundraising, but also somebody who understood how to read a balance sheet and could use the tools that an MBA would give you. So I went to the University of Texas full-time program up in Austin, great place to live, especially back then, uh, and uh, got my MBA. And then in the, my last semester of 
of the two-year program, I got hired by a new foundation that was starting in San Antonio called the Kronkowski Foundation. And Mr. Kronkowski, when he died, was- Before we jump into that, Mike, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, there probably weren't too many folks with your background in that program. Oh, I said, man. Uh, I felt like an alien at times. Yeah, they were coming in from Wall Street or coming in from consulting firms, yes. coming in from oil and gas. And you're the director of development at San Antonio Academy. Um, what what stood out as maybe some of the biggest, I don't know, uh, areas where you felt really stretched, but then maybe if there were areas where you felt like you were better positioned to contribute uh, to the class discussions, et cetera. So no doubt I was stretched. I, I had taken one accounting class in, at Trinity pass fail, and that was just to make my dad happy at the time. So uh, every semester I intentionally took accounting because I knew it was a tool in my toolbox that was pretty dull. Uh, so, so that statistics, accounting, those were the classes that I probably struggled the most with, but I knew I needed them. But, you know, frankly, it was my Trinity education that helped me. In most business schools, it's a very participatory case study driven. So it's the ability to present, the ability to um, write. And I feel like I, I walked out of college with those skills. So, but I was fascinated to see so many of my classmates that really struggled with being able to write a paper, um, make a point in a discussion or present publicly. They were stressed out about it. But one thing I will tell you about business school, and it, I'm not saying it's, it's right, but people tend to play to their strengths. So if you're on a team, the people that came out of an accounting background end up doing the analysis on the finances and then the people who are good at speaking do the speaking. And you do that in a, in a group setting because it, it, it helps the work go faster and more efficiently. It probably would have been better if we all switched roles and done the thing that we weren't as accustomed to. But um, so I, I feel like, uh, I feel like I, my natural strengths played well. And then I learned a lot because it was stuff that coming from a great liberal arts background, I hadn't really used those tools. And you talked about the network you built serving in a development leadership role in a tight knit San Antonio community, but I imagine it was a very different but equally important network that you built uh, in business school. Really statewide, um, although nationally, a lot of the, my classmates are all over the country. Um, I also got involved when I was there in helping Trinity, sorry, UT at the time had gotten dinged in the US news rankings because they didn't have alumni chapters. And so I got involved with a group of students that helped build what we called at the time the Graduate Business Network, but it was really an alumni association for the School of Texas Business School. And that, that was huge for me because it was using the skills I already had from the work I'd done in my nonprofit career and then putting them to work for UT as a volunteer. I ended up helping found the San Antonio chapter when I moved here but it, and then stayed involved on that board nationally. But it was, it was, that's really where I built a great network, not just with my classmates, but with other alumni and graduates of the program and then the people behind me. I love it. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to write letters of recommendation for business school applications yeah. among Evertrue staff. And then, you know, in my, my kind of broader network, in particular through the Brown football community. And one of the things that I often encourage folks to, to highlight is if you, you know, working at a company like ours where you have a lot of exposure to building and engaging alumni, both volunteer wise, but also philanthropically, 
or in the case of some of my uh, friends at Brown that that uh, that are serving as board members, for example, of the Football Association, make sure to highlight that in your application. Let yeah. these uh, admissions and enrollment officers see you not just as the student on campus, but let them see you as that young alumnus five years out, 10 years out, et cetera. And if you can sort of say, hey, look, like here are all the reasons why I'll be a great fit in a compelling member of this class, but also I've got a track record that right. is going to make me a valuable contributor in your community for years to come. And I think people don't highlight that enough if they have pre-MBA alumni volunteer or development experience. Uh, such a good point. And I'm in retrospect, I'm not even sure I highlighted that like I could have. I think about other leadership programs I've done since where I've made a point to emphasize a network and a community walking in. But I, I will tell you, anybody who's thinking about going to business school, think really carefully about what the state of that alumni association that you'll be becoming a part of is, because it is an ongoing resource to you for the rest of your life. It's the same thing we say at the undergrad level, but look for that at the graduate level too, um, because it's you want people in high places at companies specifically looking for alumni of their programs, MBA or undergraduate. That network is incredibly valuable. Really well said, really well said. So as you were sharing, your objective was to build the MBA toolkit and then potentially explore the charitable foundation world which you did for a little bit before going down your own entrepreneurial path, which I'm really excited to learn more about. So I did it for two years. I was a grants manager for this new foundation. The guy's estate was, he was the single largest shareholder of Merck Pharmaceutical when he died. And uh, so it was started as the seventh largest foundation in the state of Texas, 300 million in assets. And I was a grants manager, which meant I worked with nonprofits as they applied for the money and went through the process. And at some point, you really try and become an advocate for them and what they're trying to accomplish. But the board makes the decisions around where the money goes. Um, it was a good place to start. But, uh, you know, it, it was increasingly paperwork. And because I was the guy with the MBA, I was really tasked with looking at all the financials. Um, won't surprise you, Brent, but I was shocked by how many of these dedicated nonprofit leaders would ask me, so what's a balance sheet again? Um, Profit and loss, how did they, they literally struggled with the so financial even as side. they were applying for grants, for example, you want some level of financial yes. standing because you don't want to be throwing charitable foundation money after bad, let's say. Yeah. And, and so you ended up almost having to coach. I was a consultant, that. yeah, to, the, to all of them applying because this foundation in particular had some fairly stringent financial requirements just to understand the context of, you know, are, were they ready for the grant? And uh, just, it, it was not part of the skill set of a lot of nonprofit leaders at that time. It, I it keep hoping that like, and, and I don't think I've interviewed anyone who's uh, worked at a, at a foundation in the manner you're describing. And given that it's so concentrated with one family, I mean, it almost sounds like a family office, but the sort of other side of the coin, right? So for folks who aren't familiar, there are, Family offices are, are a growing part of the kind of investment community where in the past it might be as a family that with significant wealth, um, we might just allocate our wealth out to third party uh, wealth advisors, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. But increasingly, 
um, family offices are building their own direct investing efforts. And so they will actually almost serve the role of venture capital or private equity investor cutting checks directly into companies. Um, it almost sounds like you were the nonprofit version of, of playing venture capitalists where folks are coming in, pitching you, giving you the business model, and then you're basically deciding, does this hit our criteria or not? Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. I will tell you the language wasn't there even in 98 when I was, this was taking place. When I graduated from the University of Texas Macomb School, most of my classmates went out to work for startups. And so the language around pitching. This was sort of dot com. It was the dot com period. It was garden.com. It was everything. And, and then three years later, they were all back in consulting gigs because it imploded. But it, it, you're right. That language was, is still fairly new in the foundation world. You've got a couple of large foundations that will think of themselves as social entrepreneurs and will even consider loan programs. But for the most part, uh, I would tell you the foundation world is still very traditional in the way it, it receives and, and grants money. Very interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it, to see the innovation that has happened to almost create marketplaces for startups. I mean, now you can literally have your pitch deck, log in online, distribute it to a thousand investors, have people opt in, opt out. There's now crowdfunding so consumers can get involved. Sounds like none of that's in place in the charitable. I campaign. would guess if somebody were interviewing you, Brent, you would have a story to tell about the early years of Evertrue and kind of the, the steps you had to go through because you were really getting this up and running during that period when pitching was becoming the norm. Yeah, we really, I mean, I, I came out of the, the business plan contest at Harvard when I was finishing my MBA in 2010. And I remember pitching, you know, basically the PowerPoint version of, of Evertrue 1.0. And, and I had an opportunity to pitch a gentleman from Google Ventures and Polaris, and there were a handful of venture firms. And I remember getting their scorecard. Um, and it was a really competitive year. We had uh, Birchbox, I think, one, which then went on to be an incredible success. Right. A friend had started a company called Relay Rides, which is now known as Turo, which has become like the Airbnb for renting out your car um, in your local wow. neighborhood. And so there were really some amazing companies that year. But the feedback that I got from pitching those judges, I remember one of them wrote on the scorecard, I would invest. And I was so blown away because there was like nothing to invest in. I'm like, I wouldn't. You're like, what? 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 In you. They were going to invest in you, Brent. But even then, I didn't really understand that yeah. that's what really what it comes down to uh, at the beginning. I had no balance sheet. There were no financials. At the true seed stage, it literally is, do I believe in the market? Do I believe I, in the way this individual is thinking about addressing it? And then do I believe in this individual? And that's really what it came down to. Well, what's funny, I told you when we started that there was a story about Evertrue and Trinity. And so when I, after I left the foundation, I went into consulting um, and we can talk about that. But in the process of my consulting work, I did that for about 15 years, loved it, nonprofit consulting. Um, it is, it's definitely in my blood. Uh, one of my longtime friends and a donor had befriended one of your salesmen because his daughter, I think, attended a private school. 
And if I'm remembering correctly, Everture really got its running start with independent and private schools before you sort of really hit the college market. And this guy reached out to me and I put him in touch with Trinity University's office. Trinity was a client of mine at that time. And uh, the lady who was the vice president, very smart lady, came out of a computer science background. And so I think she immediately saw how she could overlay Evertrue onto the legacy system that we still have and are frustrated by. But anyway, um, and I'm, I, it's such a blessing now here, set six, seven years later, I get to benefit from something I recommended to her seven years ago. That is so neat. And I, uh, I didn't remember that story, though. I suspect if I go do some strategic searching of my inbox, I can find uh, all of the breadcrumbs that would be- It was Jim. Jim was the guy. That's right. Absolutely. Um, So tell me a little bit about taking the leap into consulting. You said it's in your blood. You're passionate about it. It's not for the faint of heart. And I do think sometimes, you know, even right now, when we talk about the great resignation, I see a a fair number of uh, advancement professionals maybe making the leap to consulting firms or, or, or startups with perhaps a grass is always greener sort of, uh, you know, lens right now. But, um, you know, you took the leap basically in the heart of the dot-com boom. You were then consulting through 9-11. You're consulting through the real estate boom and bust. You're consulting, you know, through the sort of remnants of the financial crisis. And we're able to make it work. I mean, yeah. tell me about some of the highs and lows on that journey. And first, first and foremost, what inspired you to take the leap? Well, so I knew that that for me at the time, the, the foundation I was working at was not a long-term plan. And I had worked with enough nonprofits and I had been very engaged in our local Association of Fundraising Professionals chapter, AFP. And so I had a good network and I basically thought, let me just, try this to see if it'll work. And within six months, I was making more money as a consultant than I'd made at the foundation. So I figured, okay, at least financially, that affirms that this is a good choice for now. Um, So much of what I did, you know, especially when you're working with younger nonprofits, you've got these amazing executive directors that have a vision and are focused on their mission. But what they're not good at is finances. They're not good at planning necessarily. And there's certainly nobody's ever taught them how to raise money. And so I really tried to focus there on that intersection of fundraising and then how to get your board and volunteers engaged in the work. So it's not just you as an executive director doing it all by yourself. And that seemed to really speak to people. They knew that their boards were supposed to be more involved, but they didn't know how to ask. And they certainly didn't know how to train them. And then they were all freaked out about losing some measure of control if the board got more engaged, even though I know I should engage my board. If they're that engaged, are they going to fire me? And so, you know, you you really had to sort of walk them through how they can actually be a more effective leader if their board were engaged in the fundraising. And so so, it sounds like you were you were very hands on. And also when I when I compare it to maybe our world. You know, for example, early on in your in, in a startup journey, uh, you might really benefit from a fractional CFO, somebody who has the skill set and the background that you probably couldn't afford to hire full time. But frankly, you don't even have enough work for somebody to do it maybe full time. And you can right. do the same thing with, uh, you know, agencies or, or a fractional CTO in some cases. Um, it sounds like you were almost playing that fractional business partner 
um, for folks that maybe had the passion and the desire to drive change, but didn't have that, that same tool toolkit, if you will. So what you're saying makes complete sense, but I'll, I got to be honest, Brent, I chose the opposite approach. Okay. When you're in consulting, you have to make a pretty early call. Am I going to be a strategic consultant or an implementation consultant? Okay. So what you've just described is a great model for a lot of people who basically become your at you know your your hireable part-time development person. Mm-hmm. What I realized early on about that model is that you can work three to four clients and all your time is taken, especially if they expect to see you face to face. You know that may be a day or two here or there, but your week pretty much gets stacked up. But if you are a strategic consultant, you're developing the plans for, uh, we had something we called a strategic development plan. We put together a plan for two to three years, and then we train their staff on how to implement it. And then we get brought in repeatedly for kind of ongoing assistance. I could work 13 to 15 of those clients. Interesting. So it was, a, it was an early choice. My partner and I had a great partner. Her name is Marion Lee. She still has the consulting firm, now has her name. But man, we did such great work because not only did we take the strategic approach, but we would always put two consultants on every project. One, it was just more fun. If you're not just by yourself working all the time, you've got somebody that you share the workload. But then two, one of the big challenges for individual consultants is if I'm not, on, if I'm not working, I'm not making money. And when do I take vacation? So by creating a, a, a team of two consultants on every project, when one of us took off, the other one was, there was n- not missing a beat. You still had somebody on the team that was guiding the project. And it almost so, sounds like you built in maybe not a directly recurring revenue model, but it was sort of set up in a way where you would have that ongoing relationship as opposed to come in, do a really deep dive for six months and then be out of there and can go out. And maybe that's part of what helped you weather some of those ups and downs, um, which can certainly have a big impact on consulting firms as, you know, as I think many experienced uh, even last year during the pandemic, for example. Well, I got to tell you in 2008 and nine, when we had the, you know, the housing recession, we were both worried. And ironically, I think we had one of our strongest years. And it was mainly because our, our clients, the nonprofits, knew that they needed help more than ever. Uh, their own, they were worried about the effect of the economy on their donors and their ability to give. And so they had to be better at their plans um, and more strategic. And so, so, but thank God we'd been in business a good eight years before that happened. Had that happened right at the start of a consulting firm's work, it, it was, would have been a true struggle. And I've talked to my partner now. I've been here at Trinity. It's hard to believe it's six years. And my partner is a close friend, the godmother to my kids. I keep in touch with her, my former partner. And um, she said that this year during the pandemic, it was the same case that uh, more, she had more business than she anticipated because people really knew they needed the right help to leverage what they were trying to do. So during that journey, Trinity was I know close to you throughout. I know you were very engaged as an alumnus uh, of Trinity. Uh, were there like five times along the way that you almost stepped in and uh, uh, roles or did the stars just align this one moment back in 2015? It's funny because I, I did stay involved as an alum, a local board, and then I was the president of our national alumni board. I sort of did feel like I always had some unfinished business with Trinity. 
But the guy who was truly my mentor, his name was Mark Rainey, is Mark Rainey. Mark was the president, VP for alumni relations and development for 30 years. And so during kind of all this time up to what you and I've been talking about, he was still at Trinity. Uh, And then we had a president come in. And as new presidents do, they oftentimes realign their executive committee. So Mark was no longer at Trinity. He then had two hires uh, and each of them lasted about two years. And so then the university made the decision to hire a new president. And it was then that a faculty started calling me and saying, hey, you guy coming in, would you ever throw your hat in the ring? And at this point, Brent, I'd been consulting for 15 years. But one of my clients steadily through all of that kind of chaotic period for the university had been the university. We also did job search work. So I would help find development officers for the university. And then two years later, they would call me on their way out the door. And so I, I knew I knew what was going on. And so I, uh, I got to meet the president before I threw my hat in the ring. I felt like, okay, I could see working with this guy. Um, Danny Anderson was the former dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at KU, but he had gone to Austin College. He was from Texas. He, he kind of understood, he definitely understood a liberal arts, um, what it was going to take to run a liberal arts university. So I threw my hat in the ring. Uh, my partner and I, uh, after I took the job, we separated out and she bought my half of the company from me, which was gracious of her. I never would have anticipated that. Um, and it, it has been a really good choice because I've been able to bring this network to bear for a college that I love. And like you said, the chance to work at your own alma mater is, I mean, there's nothing better because there's no learning curve. Um, I will tell you, we can talk about this if you want, but learning how to manage people is a learning curve when you've come out of consulting, but um, there's no learning curve with relation to what the mission is and, and how investors can make a difference. I do want to talk about that because in a certain regard, uh, in spite of it almost feeling like you, you, you know, your whole life's work led up to really great alignment with this role, the role leading the team as you are now serving on the university leadership team could not be more different than strategic advisory going mile wide inch deep with 13 to 15 clients versus Boom, going all in. in on one organization, the people, the challenges, the systems. I mean, you know, there's a level of getting to fly above a lot of the nitty gritty work in so a consulting context that now is on your desk and in your inbox and in your text messages, I'm sure, on a daily right. basis. Right on. And, and there have been days when I have quietly yearned for my consulting role. But, um, but I also know that, especially when you can measure the progress, not only in terms of the dollars raised, but in the way you're changing the dynamics of a team, I get to see that progress daily. And it's, it's powerful because it's working. Uh, so as a consultant, I maybe, you know, we had about eight consultants at our peak, but I was really just, it was more partnering. Do you want to, Brent, let's you and I work on this together. You do this part, I'll do that part. Uh, you know, that's very different than now I've got 50 staff members. And uh, so, so I will tell you that I think about 90% of management is common sense and treating people fairly the way you would want to be treated. And then there's that 10% where I had no idea that was the way you were supposed to do that. <laughs> totally would not have guessed that I was supposed to make that choice instead of the one I did. 
So in my first couple of years, I was really, I struggled with that 10% because I, I, there were a lot of HR things that, you know, not having come out of higher ed for years, I'd started my career in higher ed, but then it had been a kid 25 years since I had been in higher ed. So I was not only reacclimating to this strange world that is higher education, but I was also, you know, I had seven direct reports and trying to go through the evaluation process and none of the things you do as a consultant. So it was a learning curve. Um, But one of the things I pride myself on is recruiting good people. And over this time, I've been able to put together the team, uh, working with the people I already had, but also recruiting some key uh, staff members and roles that have enabled me to get out of the daily operational work and into the really, the work of a vice president is helping the president at the principal gift level and engaging the board. And so if I were being critical of myself, my first three years, I didn't do a good job of that part of it because I was working so hard to sort of find a rhythm again with my team. But now I'm at the point where, and especially as we're in this comprehensive campaign, that's exactly the work I get to do every day. When you think about the last six years, uh, what are you most proud of that your team has accomplished? And when you think about the next six years, what are the most aspirational goals that you feel like you all might be able to tackle, but they're not a sure thing? It's a good question. So last six years, when I literally within my first month, I went to a happy hour. This would have been 2015. I went to a faculty happy hour and one of the faculty members over a drink leans over to me and says, your department's really screwed up. You know that, right? I was like, yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's why I'm here. Good, good, honest candor. We take it. It was, it was. Although her department academically was pretty screwed up too. I came to learn years later. But anyway, side note. Uh, So, anyway, I think the thing I'm most proudest of is we have changed the dynamic of that, the people culture within our office. And uh, we went from about 37 people to now 50 people. We were lucky to approach one of our longtime. Uh, foundation funders for a planning grant related to campaign expenses. So as I was sort of building the runway for this comprehensive campaign, I was able to strategically add people in prospect research, major gift officers, alumni relations teams. So I was able to build out the team to fill in some holes. So recruited new people and then spent a lot of time on culture and working as a team. I'm sure you hear this from the people you interview, but it's so easy, especially in a, a somewhat good sized shop to have a lot of silos. Like we had a Chinese wall between alumni relations and fundraising. One was friend raising, one was fundraising. We literally would have somebody go to Houston to see somebody only to find out that somebody from the alumni relations office had visited that same person the week before. So we didn't have communication. We had people making goals just for their own departments. And so one of the first things I did was take my senior team of about seven and say, you all have your great goals for within your departments, but we need goals as a team. Like what are our goals as the seven? This is team one. And so we've spent a lot of time working towards culture goals and hiring goals and the feel of the team as a group, because we share that. And then they still, you know, share with one another, their individual department goals. And that's been a huge help. And as you think about having that foundation and alignment and communication and culture at least worked out or improved, where, where, where might you be able to go? Are we headed next? 
So Trinity is embarked on, we're in the quiet phase of the largest campaign in our history. Um, right now, it will probably be around 300 million. Uh, the beauty of being in a quiet phase is we can change that goal if we need to before we need to go truly public with it. Uh, ironically, and you know this from talking to your clients, the old school quiet phase and not announcing gifts until you're 50, 60 percent, that's really no longer the case. Now, more and more, you're seeing colleges, even as they begin campaigns, announcing large lead gifts to keep momentum going. And it's quite possible to also argue that most colleges are always in a big campaign. So there's never any, you know, you're shifting from one initiative to the next. Yeah, but I think louder than the quiet phase of the campaign. That's what I've yeah, it's, it's, it gets it gets pretty loud. So we're still in theory in the leadership phase. Um, we've hit almost 100 percent of our board giving. We're setting new records every year. Um, so that's all good to me. I, as you talk about challenges, I always think about the challenge of keeping and retaining great staff. And so to me, the longer we can keep somebody on the team, the deeper their relationships. Mark Rainey, my mentor, the former VP, told me that he always felt like a development officer really wasn't hitting their stride until five years into the job. Mm. And yet, if you look at the resume of 90% of the applicants for any job in fundraising, you'll see that three to four years, they're always going to the next place. In part, that's because it's an opportunity to get a raise or it's an opportunity to get a, a larger role. But when you think about the effect on our institutions, every time somebody leaves after three or four years, we've got a new development officer coming in and starting from scratch, R building relationships you know that it takes three, four visits before you really get to the conversation around a bigger gift. And, and so you lose a lot of your rhythm with that kind of turnover. I do want to ask you, as we sit here in late July, 2021, uh, hybrid, right? We did our Raise Live conference yesterday and we did it fully virtual with an in-office live MC experience from my colleagues, Mike and Caroline. Because we just, with the planning cycle, we didn't think it was going to be realistic to have uh, an in-person experience. Right. Just like most folks uh, in your shoes uh, struggled with the sort of traditional reunion cycle or had to navigate various scenarios with commencement this year. And so we decided to sort of keep it simple, do it online. It was a great production. We learned so much in doing it. But we do miss the in-person vibe. I'd love to have you and your team up in Boston so that in addition to a day of an inspiring content, we can go and have you know, a drink and, in a, in yeah. a, have a drink with a barking crab or really connect one-on-one. -on -one. And, and so we are now already uh, one day uh, after the conference thinking about, okay, what might the future be um, where we can balance both accessibility and scale through virtual high quality experiences, but also bring back more of that human to human connection. And so uh, most fundraising leaders after a year of, having that question answered for you <laughs> are now trying to figure out how to recalibrate. And before we get into your views on hybrid and some of the things you're wrestling with, I do want to hear your story about closing maybe the largest gift in your career, maybe for Trinity uh, ever over Zoom and, and what yeah. that was like. It, it, uh, if you'd asked me, Brent, three years ago, would you ever close gifts over Zoom? I would have told you there's no way. It doesn't make up for being in person with somebody, the, the, the respect you show them by coming to their office or their home and the body language, all of that is critical. Um, but 
the beauty of having a dedicated board who knows where you are in the trajectory of your campaign and feels ownership for that campaign is that they know that it is now is the time. It's, it's not six months from now. It's not a year from now. We've got to reach 100% of our board giving and we need stretch gifts. And so there have been two cases where two of the largest gifts to the university were done over a Zoom meeting. The first was my president and our board chair approaching a long-term family, um, and they made a wonderful gift. Um, and they did it over Zoom. They were out on their boat uh, cruising, staying safe in the waters off the coast. And we, of course, were all doing it from our, our computers. But then the other gift um, was really happened in the process of recruiting kind of a chair for this campaign. He's the honorary chair. He also wanted to be more involved in that, which happily surprised me. So he's also getting involved in solicitations. But he's a big believer that he had to make his own gift before he could ask anybody to step up into that level. And so my role was to talk to him about it and get it all set up so the president could solicit him because it was important to me that my president get the ability to make that ask. And he says, you know, here's what I'm going to do. And he told us the gift. I'm like, Oh, that's great. I'm so excited. Let me have Danny call you next week and we'll get, he's like, no, no, don't waste his time. This is what I'm doing. He doesn't need to call me. I was just like, ah, oh, man. Mike, does that mean three years ago, you're not alone in assuming, or you're not alone in stating you never would have imagined having conversations like that over Zoom. Right. Certainly not with somebody on their boat with the president and somebody else in Zoom boxes. Does that mean we were maybe just wrong. I mean, maybe we were flawed in our assumptions that the body language and the in-person, and we do need all of that because it's just the way we've always done it. But what I heard from you in both those cases were the donors didn't feel like they needed all of that. And so is it that we as fundraisers think we need it or, but, but we sort of convince <laughs> ourselves they need it. And as you think about a year from now, is it possible that with no travel restrictions and lots of comfort in getting together in person, you'll still be soliciting seven-figure gifts over Zoom if that's what the donor is comfortable doing. Well, so I think you make a really good point. The paradigm has shifted, but, but I wouldn't so much say we're wrong as it's evolved. Like during COVID, it, it was, we did not have options. And so people made the best with the tools. And then I think we've all been surprised by how how efficient the tools are. Like the idea of getting you together with my president and a board chair who lives in another part of the country, I have to get you all flown into the same place on the same day. That takes a lot of work. And yet to get an hour of your time with everybody sitting at their desks is so much easier. Not only easier, some might argue it's a better experience for all parties. It's more cost effective for the university that right. people care deeply about. And so that's where we really just wonder where things might settle out. Because what you're hinting at is, is maybe we weren't wrong three years ago. We just went through one of the most rapid changes in technology adoption in history, right? When you think about how long it took people to adopt email in the mid to late 90s versus how quickly we all adopted Zoom and Teams yeah. and Slack in the 2020 period, there's no comparison. It was like an overnight transformation. And just like once you start sending emails, you don't unlearn that, right? We're not going to unlearn our ability to do this. And those same board members and trustees 
are going to be closing on houses remotely and they're going to be making other large financial decisions remotely. And there's no reason to assume that uh, philanthropy can't scale more virtually, even post pandemic, even though we might be tired of Zoom. So I agree with that. But here's my worry, Brent. These relationships were founded based on lots of personal interaction. And so then to have a Zoom call where I ask you for a significant gift after we've known each other for five years, it seems timely and efficient and because we already have this great relationship. But when I think about trying to form a relationship with you and you and I have never met before, we've never been together in person and using Zoom is our only tool to do that. That's where I think this is going to break down. Uh, you might do a worry that Zoom may lead us to a transactional zone of fundraising for a business that's always been relational. And the fact that we can go have lunch together and talk about our families and then eventually uh, talk about a gift, although I never recommend having a gift over lunch, um, I still think there's value in that. And so I worry about the gift after this and the one after that. If we still have never met and we're always doing this by Zoom, I think we're missing this opportunity to create a relationship that has nothing to do with a gift. I agree with you, Mike, but I also think when you talk about transactional versus relationship oriented, the reality is that very few of us as donors have true relationships. And our data suggests fewer than 2% of prospects are assigned to gift officers in the current construct. And so for 2% of people, they might have the opportunity today to build a one-on-one relationship. And we all know that even within that 2% of assigned prospects, the quality of experience based on turnover or inconsistency of outreach is very different. So now maybe we cut that in half and we've got 1% of the population having a true relationship. And at least historically, that has meant that for the rest of us, it's the call center hitting us up. It's the mass email now. It's, uh, giving it's the giving day, right? Guess what? There are There is nothing less relationship-based, more transactional than a giving day. And so that's where I struggle. And, and I think from where I sit, thinking about ways that we could be more relationship-driven via Zoom, for example, even if it's not as relationship-driven as getting together in person, right. far better of an experience than a transactional give now, give now, give now, give now. Right. So Click that's here. sort of the balance right. we need to strike as a community. I agree. And I think I was approaching it from the principal gift standpoint. Absolutely. Those biggest gifts, I, I do think there's always going to have to be a personal element, but you're right on with the vast majority of our donors only get that ask through some electronic means. And so what you hope is that the four years they spent here or as a parent, the experience their kid has, that that's enough emotional connection to make the decision when it comes time for the ask. Yeah. And, and what we're really excited about now is how do we sort of leveraging, not just Zoom, leveraging video, leveraging the student voice. Yes. You know, the, 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 the 2020 version of your Zoom image hitting the phones in the 80s, uh, unfortunately for a lot of universities, it still looks way too much like what you were doing in the 80s in spite of massive leaps in technology right. and uh, people are rebranding their call centers as engagement centers, but it's still a transactional high volume in person. We still have a room with, you know, 20 phones in it right. where students make calls. 
And there is such an opportunity to, I think, evolve beyond that to create more of that authentic relationship building experience deeper in the giving pyramid while not sacrificing the critical work at the top of the pyramid that ultimately right. will make or break the campaigns. Yeah, I, I think the future is bright for this field. I tell students graduate from college that if you can overcome your fear about talking about money and asking for a gift, you will have a career for the rest of your life and job opportunities that pay well. Because if this is just, you know, if you've got the heart for this work, there will always be a need for great fundraisers. And you can do it anywhere, big cities, small cities, globally, domestically, remotely. You name it. remotely. So let's talk about that because I think the, the one last thing that I wanted to cover, we asked you what you thought might be the next step forward for the sector. You said that the pipelines for recruiting gift officer talent are old and tired, not pulling in punches with that statement. So uh, why do you feel that way? And I think maybe in the context of a more remote future, um, how might we address it? Well, what I'm going to say, I'm just being transparent, won't surprise you, but most colleges, when they're recruiting for a gift officer, they look for resumes of people who've worked at similar colleges. Great. Good to have it if you can find it. But not only is it difficult to find, but that, that inherent filter limits who you're looking at from day one. Uh, oh, we'd never consider somebody who worked at a community college. We'd never consider somebody who worked for a social service agency. And especially as we're all trying to deal with the, the challenge of diversifying our workforce and trying to have more employees of color, if we keep relying on just somebody who's worked at a college just like us, then we're leaving on the table those resumes of people who have all the skills, have the right characteristics, but just haven't held those jobs. So even as we do searches now, I've really encouraged my team, don't just look at the resumes of people who have had higher ed experience, go across the spectrum, and then even think about maybe somebody comes out of a sales background or a volunteer management role, something, maybe they worked for a sports team, anything that can be applicable that just shows you that they've got the skills. They don't have to have the same experience. And one of the things we're really focused on as well is how do we, how do we really create an on-ramp from your student population? I mean, we hear time and again, some of our, you know, when you look at the, the, the composition of the student caller community, it often can be a, a much more diverse uh, group of students than you might see within the advancement staff more broadly. But there has just not been a natural on-ramp to right. go from roles like that into a more junior development type role because oftentimes we want the major gift officer with four years of experience, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so how do we sort of look at this homegrown talent pipeline potentially being a competitive advantage as well? The models I've heard of schools that are doing it well is they create some official internship or two-year position within the framework. So there are, they're recruiting kids straight out of their phonothon program to work for this official role for two years. And that's really a budgeting. If you've yeah. got the budget to do it, I think it's brilliant. Um, you know, all of us, I can speak for most of us, have just gone through a budget cutting year and probably at least one more year ahead of budget cutting um, related to the effects of uh, the lack of room and board on our budgets um, during COVID. So, but if you can figure out a way to create a pipeline like that's an official program, I think that's a huge advantage. 
we get involved with our student leaders as they graduate to help them try and find jobs. If any of them have an interest in fundraising, I am sending the resumes out to people. I am trying to find them gigs that at other nonprofits because I want them to get right into it. Um, and I think most people have come to realize that when you when you hire a trainee student, you've got somebody who can read, who can write, who can, who's a hard worker. And so, so it's working on a small scale. But to your point, it's it's a problem throughout our field. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This hour has flown by. Your perspective is super helpful. Your passion for Trinity and the field uh, is uh, so impressive. And I do want to give you the opportunity, if you are, you know, budget uh, challenges aside, thinking about staffing back up in the coming year or two. Are there roles that folks who are listening should be aware of right now? And also, I know you're active on LinkedIn. Is that, is that the best way to stay in touch? You bet. LinkedIn, I'm very active there. Please reach out to me. We have probably five or six positions that we're hiring for. We've just come off of a budget uh, hiring freeze. The floodgates are now open. So we're hiring uh, for annual giving positions. We're, we're able to expand our stewardship team. We're actually adding another plan giving, sort of kind of an assistant director of plan giving. So that could be somebody out of the legal background. Um, or somebody just with a propensity for those kinds of transactions. And then we're going to be hiring some gift officers. So I feel like we're going to get a whole new batch of strong people into the team. Super exciting. Mike, thank you uh, for your partnership, for sharing your perspective. And uh, we really look forward to continuing to collaborate on some of these big ideas in the years to come. So best wishes as you continue to uh, march through the loud phase of the quiet campaign. All right. Well, Brent, thank you. And I, I know in no way at all is this meant to be kind of a, an advocacy forever true, but I do want you to know that we could not be having the success we've had using the legacy system that we inherited without, without the agility that Evertrue has given us. So I'm really grateful that we've had it as a tool. We're, we're going through digital transformation. We're gonna head into AffiniQuest and Salesforce and all the great new world, the brave new world ahead. But um, I don't think the last six years could have happened successfully without us having that tool for our team. Well, we feel like we're still just getting started and I'm optimistic the next six years we'll have opportunities for even greater uh, transformation. So best wishes, Mike. Have Thank a you. terrific uh, Friday here, and we'll talk soon. Brent, signing off with Mike Bacon from Trinity University. Take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.